this idea that was like promised to us in this movie was that whatever is happening to you now will continue to matter 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when you're a grown up. Greetings, felicitations, salutations, hello, and welcome to The Feminist Present. I'm Laura Good. And I'm Adrian Dobb. And we are here today on this historic occasion to lead Adrian through his first viewing of that triumph of cinema called Now and Then. Which now and is Then. Now and Then. Now is the time to revisit Now and Then, which was released in 1995 and directed by Leslie Linka Gladder, who would later go on to Homeland fame, among other things. But like, Adrian, what did you think about this uh, this teen movie? <laughs> I was, first of all, kind of ashamed by how unaware I was of this, this movie, given how mm-hmm. formative it clearly had been for both you and our guests. But I enjoyed it. I thought that there were parts of it that really, I thought, transcended its, its era and transcended you know, the, the the fact that this was, as we kind of talk about in, in our conversation, you know, it's clearly pitched as, hey, this is basically going to be a gender flipped uh, stand by me. Mm-hmm. And, and they lean into that pretty hard and not always, uh, it's, it's sometimes to the film's detriment. Mm-hmm. But given that, I thought it was it was a pretty terrific film and, you know, amazing cast. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and I was just so glad that, that the two of you got to got to walk me through it. Mm-hmm. To, to bike you through it. And through your obsession with it, I should say. Yeah, this is like one of those movies that was once a guilty pleasure for me that I have like snatched back from the cloaks of guilt into like just pleasure. And part of that was rewatching it. You know, I saw this when it came out when I was like in sixth or seventh grade. And then when I was making a film of my own with today's guest, Mira Menon, in the early 2000s, we rewatched this film. This was sort of funny to talk about because I remembered this day very distinctly that we like rewatched this film film together and it like meant a lot to me she of course had no memory of this um because memory is different <laughs> for everybody um but that rewatch for me was really an act of being like oh wait this movie was like really important and really formative to me and like many cultural artifacts that are marketed and intended for teenage girls it was not taken very seriously by the critical right. establishment or really considered part of the canon but like you adrian were just talking about the casting i mean when we're talking about the casting like gabby hoffman christine Christina Ricci, Thora Birch, like these are people who end up being very central to the sort of like Hollywood canon of the 90s. So I think there are a lot of like rigorous arguments that could be made for taking this movie seriously. Brendan Fraser's in it for like a hot minute. Brendan Fraser, yeah. So hot. Oh my God. So do you want to... Do you want to say a few things about our guest? I would love to say a few things about Mira. So Mira is one of my closest friends, and you'll get that from the interview. She is a filmmaker, obviously. Uh, She has made two feature films. Uh, The first was the one we made together, which we co-wrote and she directed. It's called Farrago's Bang. You can watch it on the internet. iTunes and Seed and Spark are usually the easiest places. And then I'm trying, I think it was 2015 that her second film, Equity, starring Anna Gunn, came out, which is like a female powered Wall Street movie that's really interesting and great. And uh, she's also directed a number of TV shows. And very excitingly, she is one of the directors for the new Ms. Marvel series that's coming out later this year. Mira's directed episodes of many different shows. I loved her episodes of Dirty John mm-hmm. um, and Halt and Catch Fire and Glow and she's a real up-and-comer that Mira Menon um she lives in LA she is fantastic and she joined us to talk about the amazing the iconic now and then the canonical now and then um which I think also has like a very canonical soundtrack that we got into a little bit that's right but yeah we talk about the suburbs we talk about gender of course um and things that are marketed to teenage girls not being taken that seriously and uh we talked about a whole lot else too yeah enjoy enjoy
Okay, so Mir, this is like a very nostalgic rewatch for me. And I wondered if we could begin, I think the last time I saw this movie was at your house. And I wondered if you could tell me what you remember. Do you remember what I'm talking about when we ordered the DVD? When we ordered the DVD at my house in like my parents' house in New Jersey? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. So I guess I'm going to have to tell the story because you don't remember. I have a very distinct memory of like, I want to say... 2010 or 11 when we were in the like making a fair goes bang phase we were at your house on Mm -hmm. mount washington and we like had this moment where we were like i love now and then and like i don't remember whether i said it first or you said it first but like within two seconds we were in like emphatic agreement that like we both loved this movie and that it was a very important movie and like we both were struck with this like i need to watch now and then right now but like it wasn't anywhere on streaming so i remember we went on Amazon, which, you know, I know you're not supposed to do, at least in public, but we went on Amazon and ordered it for 24-hour DVD delivery and then, like, watched it. But you don't, do you remember this? I do remember it coming in the mail now. I do remember us ordering a copy and getting it very quickly now, but I am surprised we didn't watch it before when we lived together in Brooklyn or something, like, before you wrote Sister Mischief, basically, but, like, but I just, I remember just that reading Sister Mischief and being, like, this feels a lot like now and then, so, like, it might Uh, all just be conflated that, like, I'm, like, I thought you, maybe, like, we talked about it before, but it must have just been in your head and DNA the way it is in every, girl born in a certain time period's DNA. Oh, my God. It is a movie that is, so, for anybody listening who, like, for, for everybody listening who has not read my book, Mira is referring to my young adult novel, Sister Mischief, which is similarly constructed in, like, a four-girl structure, though I think it makes some crucial differences from now and then. But also, like, I think the biggest element that I directly lifted from now and then was, like, a treehouse is, like, a central location where a lot of dramatic action takes place. But in my book, it's, like, actually sex. And in now and then, it's just people longingly looking at each other, but never talking about sex. (laughs) There were a lot of queer layers to now and then when I watched it this time. Um... But Mira, how did you regard this revisiting of the film? <laughs> I, I mean, I was just like, I texted you, it was just like a real pleasure to have the reason, just because it's one of those movies I did rewatch so much as a kid that you just, I know mm-hmm. it, like it's a memory. It feels of like my own memory watching it, you know? Yeah. Like the things that they do in the movie feel like things that like were in my childhood, but they weren't. They were just, they were just scenes in a movie that I watched a lot in my childhood. <laughs> So, I mean, that's a weird, like, kind of experience to have whenever you rewatch a movie, like a Disney movie or something. I have the same kind of experience where it's like, oh, man, I just know this so well. I know this music drop. I know this uh, kind of this performance, like when the teenies reading like the, the the results from the Cosmo quiz and like every rea- every girl's reaction to their like res- result from the quiz. I'm like, oh, I know it's like such a memory. Um, so that's a, it's just a... I'm pretty sure that scene is where I learned the word foreplay, <laughs> like in exactly the way that you're talking about of like this movie is now just one of my memories. Yeah. Like I'm pretty sure that scene specifically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I just love <laughs> it's it. It's so good. I'm, yeah. Adrian, you had not seen the movie before, right? This was your first viewing? I had not. And you also did not grow up either female or in the United States. So you were a very different viewer in terms of context than either Mira or I was. Yeah. I mean, I, I was aware of it as a Demi Moore film. And I was actually a little shocked by how little of a Demi Moore film it ended up being. That struck me on this viewing too. Yeah. I had always assumed, I think I'd seen the trailer and I guess I'd assumed it flashes back and forth and it really doesn't. It's uh, it's uh, now, then, and then kind of now at the end for like five minutes. I mean, I hope Demi Moore got a lot of money for this because it must have been like, what, a cool like eight hours on set or something like that? It's about, I actually counted it out. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. What did you figure out, Mir? I was like, maybe three days, but it depends because they were shooting Mm -hmm. on film back then. So it might have been a little more. True. I was also, I think I timed it out in the movie and the old, the older quote, scare quotes, older, the adult women only have about like 15 or 20 minutes of screen time. There's about like 10 minutes at the beginning and 10 minutes at the end. So three days of shooting sounds about right Uh to me. And I also thought it was a really neat trick of the production design to put Chrissy in the same house that she grew up in, thus meaning that they just had to dress the same house Mm -hmm. twice in order to create that visual. I thought that was very clever. (laughs) 
Maybe we, should we, um, for, for those among our listeners who don't know the movie, yeah. should I give a rundown or should we all give a I rundown? Really want you to round, I really want you to round it out from your tenured academic perspective. I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to get the name, I'm going to get the names wrong. We'll help you. But it's essentially, um, you know, there, there are four very different women who appear to be in their mid-30s, I would say. Um, they've sort of found success in life, but haven't quite figured things out, who reconverge on a fictional sounding place in Indiana, specifically the house of one of their quartet, uh, who still lives in her childhood home and has sort of, I don't actually know if I realize what she did, but she, but she's the one who sort mm-hmm. of has stayed in place. And then in varying degrees, the others have sort of found distance from this place of origin. Demi Moore appears to be a successful writer. She's written something about uh, uh, some kind of horror mo- uh, novel. I think. Let me let me interject by saying she's a successful sci-fi, sci-fi writer, and I noted the title of her novel that appears in the opening montage. And her the Aliens Next Door. I noted it too. The Aliens <laughs> Next Door. <laughs> Samantha's book. Um, yes. <laughs> then uh, Melanie Griffith is a famous actress who seems to not have come back really very much at all. Mm-hmm. And Rosie O'Donnell plays a no-nonsense local doctor who, it is mentioned very early on, has a boyfriend. This is like, it's like very, they're, they're very clear on this. Um, I'm guessing that this was a contractual obligation in 1995. <laughs> uh, no funny business. And then you, you meet these people and you know, Demi Moore is kind of chain-smoking. Melanie Griffith sort of seems to be a little bit, you know, blousy, I suppose. And then, uh, and then we flash back to them in 1970, the summer Mm -hmm. of 1970, where they have various adventures, both kind of about serious life things, right? So like one uh, girl's parents are getting a divorce. Another, played by Christina Ricci, it seems haunted by her expanding breasts. And then there's kind of a a feud slash a still very childlike feud with local boys that is very clearly tinged with erotic longing on both sides. Mm -hmm. And then there is a kind of seance in the graveyard that sort of seems to set into motion a kind of almost supernatural mm-hmm. plot but but uh that gets resolved fairly realistically and it's just you know, it's basically like stephen king's it if if it, it turned out there was no dancing clown right it's, it's a bunch of 12 year old girls discover sex and death in a summer in the summer that changed everything like that's how i would overhang the the tropes you were noting i've been i've been talking for five minutes and that's it yes yeah Teen, teen girls discover sex and death in 1970. Really? Because what you were saying about, I wonder if we might kind of go character by character a little bit, but if we're, I was thinking about Christina Ricci's character, whose name is Roberta, Roberta that's right. and we introduce, or she is introduced in her prepubescent form, binding her breasts, like trying to flatten her chest. And so in addition to like one of the first things about her character being introduced, being how she's haunted by like her growing breasts. She's also haunted by the absence of her mother. And so I think immediately in her character, we see this intertwining of like sexual immaturity as a precipice that is also about sort of confronting the reality of death. Agree? Disagree? Total silence. This is just like teaching class. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it makes sense because I mean, she she discovers at a certain point just how her mother died too, which I thought was the one of the one of the kind of toughest and and also kind of richest scenes in the entire movie. Yeah, and there's Mm -hmm. that whole sequence Mm -hmm. where she fakes her own death, which is like so weird, actually, in retrospect. I was was just like, I feel like when I was a Mm -hmm. kid, I was like, it's another one of the antics that happens in this movie, but like, actually, it's quite like it's disturbing that she's a child that's repeatedly enacting this behavior (laughs) apparently it's a bit that she does all the time according to her friends like that's quite yeah disturbing and something her father should be aware of i don't know if anyone's told him (laughs) that's a really good point i don't think her father actually ever appears on screen and i agree with you that like her sort of um like dark humor death jokes of like i'm going to dive into this obviously too shallow water and then look like i i'm dead is really dark for a 12 year old and it's not surprising that the other 12 year olds Mm. kind of have no idea how to deal with that but that was sort of christina ricci's brand at the time wasn't it totally yes totally great point yes yeah 
She's totally associated with that darkness because of Wednesday yeah. Adams. Probably was before, before this, yeah. right? Yeah. Wednesday Adams and Casper the Ghost, also starring Devin Sawa, were both before this, I'm pretty sure. Before this? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And there was also, okay, so one of the things that I really want to talk to you, to both of you about that, like, you already know really fascinates me is this sort of quartet character construction. I think it's very much worth noting that all of these four girls are white and they live in what is, I think, implied to be a gated community. Is that how you guys understood it? That it's like a gated community or just that it's a new development? That was a little ambiguous to me. I mean, it sounded to me more like a like a de- new development. It, you can sort of tell whenever they leave, they're okay. kind of yeah. in nature. It seems like this has been dropped mm-hmm. sort of in the middle of yeah. what used to be countryside. And the horrors they encounter, right? The old, oh, the old okay. cemetery, um, the sort of old local crazy guy that they keep running into and who ends up being kind of important. Mm-hmm. This is the geography that predates this development, I thought. Um, but but the development is kind of new there. Yeah, That's a really good point. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing you saying is that a gated community would imply that the surrounding area is urban, whereas the newness of their community implies that the surrounding area is more rural. Is that kind of what you're saying or what you understood? Yeah, I think that, yeah. that was that was my sense of that geography, I have to say. That makes that makes pretty good sense with Indiana, too. So yeah, okay, we'll go with that as the understanding. So what what's interesting to me is this four-girl construction and the way it echoes several other works of four girl construction namely like girls the golden girls and sex in the city all operate on exactly this kind of construction and the way i break it down which i'm curious to get you guys' thoughts on is like there's one sort of acerbic writer as narrator right who in this case is demi moore there's one like dumb wholesome believer in hetero romance who in this case is chrissy who's having a baby and who's like super naive and played by the younger actress who never got famous. There's one like hypersexualized attention seeker. And then there's one kind of like wild card who's not as easily recognizable as a type. But like, I see those types almost as having become like archetypes at this point of like white girl canon. But like, do you guys see those echoes? Or like, what do you think when you hear that theory? Oh, totally. I think there's totally a template. And I'm not sure how how to feel about it. Cause I also, I mean, I remember were there five Spice Girls or were there four Spice Girls? I totally thought about the Spice Girls too. There were five, but they are almost exactly contemporary with this movie. Like mm-hmm. this movie yeah. is super Spice Girls yeah. girl power. And that was in my notes. Yeah. And Little Women, it's four women. And that mm-hmm. kind of fit into mm-hmm. this. I'm not sure how useful or harmful it is. Cause I remember as a child, very much trying to figure out which one was I, you know, and having to pick one and that being difficult yeah. and being a, the beginning of what I think a lot of kind of girlhood end, ends up becoming, which is like trying to fit into like a, a prefab kind of box. Right. And so exactly. I don't know, but I also think it kind of makes sense. Cause I think femininity is plurality and all these things, you know, I think it makes sense that like, a, like a protagonist has to take on multiple forms almost to kind of fully embody all these feminine kind of mm. tropes, you know? Um, so I don't know, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, you, I mean, when you said that the other day, I've been thinking a lot about it, um, and this movie falls obviously squarely into the um, the lineage you were talking about with girls and everything. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, I I think there's something interesting here. I mean, which I mean, is to some extent, I think that's what made me think of Stephen King. That, of course, what makes it different from something like Sex in the City is that it's happening in two timelines at once. Right. Mm-hmm. And that to some extent, it's actually, you know, on the one hand, that that does kind of highlight the developmental aspects of this kind of foursome kind of construction. But at the same time, it also shows that it's kind of contingent. Um, like, for, mm-hmm. for, like, you know, for instance, that with Christina Ricci, who grows up to be the Rosie O'Donnell character, it's like, it's not... I think you're supposed to notice that that could have gone many, any which ways. And I, I felt like I often forgot who was... Who mapped onto whom later on? Oh, interesting. And it's really only it's only kind of at the end that it sort of you know uh, makes sense, which in itself is kind of a powerful point, right? Because it's saying there's a kind of openness here, there's a kind of lack of determination here. I mean, I guess in the ca- case of the Thora Birch slash Melanie Griffith character, I mean, like yeah, she's mm-hmm. she's an attention seeker and rehearses her Academy Award speech, you know, in the first scene. Yeah, yeah. So it's it. She's an only child, child. you know, she's just, she's an only child. (laughs) And then, um, but but, I thought that the, you know, that 
having Christina Ricci grow up to be Rosie O'Donnell was kind of, you know, it, it felt like more of a, of a developmental curveball and sort of kept the space there for them to kind of, you know, they say, you know, they all sort of drift apart after that summer. I guess that's always, every time you talk about one summer, you have, like it's contractually obligated that the, the protagonists drift apart after that summer, whether or not they kill a vagrant or, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> but but in some way, you know, it's not as deterministic about like who these, who these young girls become. Or maybe I'm reading that into it. Hmm. That's interesting. You're making me think of uh, when I was doing some research for this, I came across the original New York Times review for this movie. And I don't remember exactly what she said, but the New York Times critic who was female made a much cattier kind of comparison to like, oh, it's so cynical that they make Christina Ricci turn out as Rosie O'Donnell. You know, like she made the same point that you made in a much cattier, <laughs> less generous way. Um, but I'm just curious about Amira, you know, you can speak to this from sort of like the industry side too. Like this is a major studio film released in 1995 that like I went through the credits was written, directed, produced by and starring almost entirely women. Yeah. Like that feels really remarkable to me for 1995. Does it does it feel that way to you? It's absolutely remarkable and it actually not only is it remarkable, it wouldn't happen now, right? Like this kind of movie could yes. be made in the studios now. It's an original, so? first of all, I mean, just the fact that it's an original screenplay, mm -hmm. it's already yes. fighting an uphill battle. You know, it's not an adaptation mm -hmm. of anything. Um, and then everything mm -hmm. about it, the fact that it's a coming of age, you know, that, that nothing kind of supernatural happens, that it's just a straightforward drama in that way. Everything about it, it would be a TV show now and actually was going mm. to be a TV show. I think this movie was going to be a TV show at some point. Oh, sure. Um, but it wouldn't be, it, there's no way a studio would make this movie at this point. And also featuring four unknowns. But I mean, I guess Christina Ricci was like the name, but like um, of the in terms of the young girls. Gabby Hoffman was fairly known at yeah. that point. Like she had done Beaches and she had done a, um, the, what's that Nora Ephron movie I love um, fuck what's the Nora Ephron stand up comic movie totally blanking on the name anyway Gabby Hoffman was in it and she's great but yeah the production sort of unicornness of like how did this movie get mm -hmm. made in 1995 like do you have any sense of that like I know Leslie Lankagladder had had a career directing in TV prior to this but do you do you know anything about how, why this movie did get made I have no idea um yeah I have no idea I would imagine that it was probably pitched within the studio system as being a female stand by me and stand by me was right something exactly that, so that like that's why it got made because there was probably some mm -hmm. notion or some willpower to make that concept work but I have no idea how a female director was attached and stuff I mean there was you know I think there was will towards you know like here and there to having women I mean Mimi Leader directed a studio film in the 90s there was there were you know examples of it but it certainly wasn't the norm mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Stand By Me because that came up a lot in the research that I was doing. Like it was mentioned in a lot of reviews. It seemed like it was kind of being gestured towards in the film's marketing in a way that very much supports what you were saying of like, that's probably how yeah. this film was pitched and why it got made or why it was conceivable to studio execs as something that could be made. Yeah. One thing that was definitely not visible to me when I watched this as a teen is because my you know suburban upbringing was so similar to what's portrayed here is how much class privilege is implied just by like the way the story is structured of these girls not really having that much to do in the summer and i was i was wondering if this occurred to either of you like i was watching this and for the first time i was watching this and i was like wow these girls don't see they talk a little bit about making money with odd jobs here and there but they don't seem to have consistent summer jobs they don't seem like any of them are tasked with like caring for their younger siblings you know like they're obviously not getting hauled out to like work on farms but it struck me that this was kind of something specific to the 1970s latchkey kid in a way that this was a moment where privileged kids could be given a lot of freedom without very much responsibility but they also weren't being helicopter parented into doing like an entire summer of like sports camps and music camps and achievement camps and growth camps and get into harvard camp you know like all of that mm -hmm. sort of hyper planning but how did you guys interpret that sort of like 1970s like geographical and socioeconomic setting well the movie even frames i feel like 
in, when they go first, maybe this when they first go into the flashback, she says something in the voiceover that like, you know, that voiceover that, you know, will eventually go on to inspire Carrie Bradshaw, I'm sure. Carrie Bradshaw's Loomis mm-hmm. voiceover as well. These like terrible, 100%. like yes. writer Smoking protagonist voiceovers. voiceovers. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> like from the writer's perspective. So they must be well-written. She's a writer and it's her voiceover. <laughs> but she frames it by saying like long before the days of video games and all this stuff, like we had to figure out a way to entertain ourselves. You know, it's like just nostalgia. Who Nintendo and MTV. Yeah, yeah. It's making America great a little bit again, this voiceover. It is. It is. Yeah. What do you think, Adrian? Yeah. There's that, but there's also this incredible sense of kind of a blank slate, right? Which is obviously entirely about ideology, right? Like the idea of the suburbs is kind of unspoiled. There's a line um, that I really found really striking about, I think it's about Samantha, so the Mm -hmm. Demi Moore character uh, as a grown-up. Her parents are the first to get a divorce in the subdivision. It's like, it makes you realize that like because the families that moved in all moved in at around the same mm-hmm. time the kids are mm-hmm. all the same age right and they are the first generation to grow up in these spaces now of course these spaces as we later learn kind of displace older structures and that's a very key i think to any kind of suburban childhood movie that like the the stuff that's been displaced kind of bites back right whether it's yeah. in the goonies i think more it's like 80s stuff stranger things has that kind of structure et does that right where they in the end have to have that bike chase through the subdivision currently under construction but it, it struck me here too that like they're growing up in a place with very few people who are younger very much younger than them or very much older than their parents right there are mm-hmm. two generations mm-hmm. cohabiting here and the only people we meet who are kind of in between that are all oddballs, right? Who are either too old or too too young or whatever. And so I think that that's, that's kind of, that's how I thought of it. I mean, they talk about like, you know, how one thing about suburbanization is that it, it isolates generations from, from one another, right? And like, that's mm-hmm. very clear here that this is a, a kind of an artificial environment in which two generations live together and all the others are kind of missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say, like they don't have tiny siblings. Well, I guess Samantha has a younger sister, but the younger sister looks like she can take care of herself. I don't know how old she's supposed to be, but you wouldn't be like, you know, in 1970, that girl can go to the store if she needs to, right? Like, Yeah, that so, girl can be at home alone for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not anymore, obviously, but, but right. back then. And, and, and then you don't have like grandparents that sort of watch them or whatever. So like it feels... Like the age profile looks extremely uniform. And I, I think that that's mm-hmm. part of how, uh, part of the world that it describes, right? Yeah, I was thinking about the the kind of Make America Great Again shade as it relates to the subdivision that they live in being called the Gaslight Edition. <laughs> and like, <laughs> even if we set aside, like, I don't think that Gaslight has the psychological subtext within this movie that it now has in the discourse, although it might, if I would be open to like a counter argument. But I think that what it's actually calling back to is this sort of like Norman Rockwell image, right, of like an old streetlight. So so they're trying to build a new subdivision that still has like the charming quaintness of the old mm-hmm. world, question mark? Like, is that how you guys read it? <laughs> but which charm kind of consists of a single gaslight at the front? Did you catch right. that? Like, <laughs> it's like, wow, yeah, really. There it way, is. Way, Can't say way, you didn't way see to, it. Yeah, way, way, way to really commit to the bit. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. How do you guys, we talked a little bit about this vis-a-vis Christina Ricci to Rosie O'Donnell. But, like, how successfully do you guys think the younger versions of the characters connected to the older versions of the characters? I have some questions about Rita Wilson. I'll begin by editorializing. I had a question about a lot of them, to be honest. Part of it is that, the, so the movie <laughs> has this, the thesis that arrives kind of, I think, maybe, like, towards the end. And it seems to be that, you know, this was the summer we, and I'm going to be par- mis- misparaphrasing here, but, like, we sought independence and we found independence from each other. Right. And I was like, maybe I just kind of enjoyed the movie too much, but I was like, I didn't get that feeling. I feel like you guys were all different, but like really sweet to each (laughs) other. Like clearly something happened in the next 20 years and we can talk about that, but I don't think the summer tore you apart. Like it it feels like you had some real sisterhood going (laughs) there and then you lost it, which we could talk about in a different movie. But like, I feel like the movie was telling you something. Like a bracelet in a storm drain. Yeah, and the, the movie is telling you this thing and you're like, I don't know, presumes facts, not in evidence. Like, like this is, I'm not sure this is true. Kay Allen Dershowitz. <laughs> what? 
Please, please edit this out. What do you think? What do you think, Mira? Do you think that the the promise of the younger characters is like successfully borne out in the older versions? I can't like it's like because it's so they're so linked to me, you know, like that opening sequence Mm -hmm. that just like that was clearly like kind of grafted onto the movie to in order to make sure it was crystal clear to the audience who the younger version and the older version was. Mm I feel like that was a very lengthy opening credit sequence of an, on like objects, you know, like that would never happen. Oh yeah, <laughs> audiences wouldn't have the patience for it now. A typewriter yeah. to show that she's a um, writer, her, like exactly yeah. her med- medical school <laughs> diploma, <laughs> Roberta's medical school diploma, stuff like that. Totally. Yeah, the movie is nineties yeah. so fuck, isn't it? Like from the like yeah from the the triple identifying pans in case you didn't get the message of what the character does for a living to the oh thank goodness Demi Moore is narrating to me that she's driving to Indiana while driving to Indiana in a car with a map of Indiana open on the like what how how, I am so confused what could possibly be happening here yeah they're just operating under the assumption that no one's paying attention for the first five minutes of the movie so you have to repeat things over and over again but I don't know, in terms of like how they actually translate, they're also linked to me in my, and I remember feeling, because we were probably the kid's age when the movie came out, right? Like 11 or Exactly. Yeah. You and I were exactly that age. That's yes. why it made such an impression, right? Because Same. this idea that was like promised to us in this movie was that whatever is happening to you now will continue to matter 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when you're a grown up. So like there's, there are things now that are monumental that are happening. It just gave scale to whatever was happening in like a 12 year old's life. Right. in in that moment, beautifully put in, in what I recognized within it. So like, because of like that kind of feeling that sentimental about like the movie itself, like I've made them make sense, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, I've made the Christina Ricci to Rosie O'Donnell transformation make sense in my own mind. I don't know why, but I no, have totally. managed to do that. <laughs> I totally identify yeah. with that. Like I almost hate to critically dissect this movie because like I just love it too much and I know that it doesn't hold up to like a critical microscope in terms yeah. of like plot holes, in terms of character development, in terms of cheesy voiceovers. But like you, I was exactly the age when this movie came out. You know, I was at that vulnerable age of like the 12, age 12, age 13, preteen years. And like, here was a story that really took those concerns seriously, you know? And like, like I love the way you yeah. put it, Mira, like it gave scale to those teenage concerns and like it, it evidenced mm. that those do yeah. have bearing on the rest of your life. And that was, it. I don't love this movie because it's a great movie by sort of standard cinematic metrics. I love this movie because it made me feel seen during a really vulnerable moment where not a lot of things did, you know? And like, I think that has yeah. to be part of the critical frame too. Totally. I mean, the, the Thora Birch to Melanie Griffith kind of uh, timeline probably makes the most aesthetic sense, but <laughs> it's pretty great. But I, yeah. but the rest, I do agree. I understand fall apart, <laughs> kind of fall apart. No one looks like themselves when they grew up. <laughs> Well, what I was going to say about the Rita Wilson character is less, I do think that the Chrissy transition from child to adult makes enough narrative sense for me to be on board with it. What I was reacting to specifically, some of this I think is in the writing and the design, and some of it I think is Rita Wilson's performance. Rita Wilson is acting like she's playing a 12-year-old, such that the note that I took, you know, she's got this frilly bow. She can't even say the word breasts as she's like nine months pregnant. Right. And like the note that I took, I have to look it up because it was such a weird thing to think. I was like... Um, I was like, Chrissy is so aggressively infantilized that in this viewing, I I started to wonder if like the story was suggesting that she had been the victim of some kind of childhood trauma, like incest or something that had frozen her at this age of development. Like that is a ridiculous reading of the movie. And I'm not actually suggesting that the movie was doing that, but I'm just saying there was something so infantilizing about her performance that really kind of graded on me in this viewing, honestly. But what did you guys think of that character? Well, I mean, I, I do want to point to the absence of trauma. Very good point. In these, I mean, there is a little bit of trauma. But there's death and divorce. But but, but but death and trauma are not, death unrecuperated is trauma, right? Like there is something here about like, and I think that's where I actually really like the fact that 
the characters didn't map so easily onto each other, right? Mm. Stand by Me is a, is maybe the more the better King comparison, but I do think like it is a kind of an interesting one because that of course like now obviously if you run into a giant killer clown who turns out to have been terrorizing your town for like hundreds of years, like that would that would set you back a little bit, right? So I and I get that, <laughs> but um, that's it, a horror movie, right? And it's all about the way in which your childhood kind of doesn't let you go and predetermines almost in which one summer when you're 12 could predetermine everything about it which is all about trauma right and i did like the fact that there felt to be there was, i felt there was some freedom uh between mm-hmm. the 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 then and the now in this movie and i think any kind of trauma narrative would have probably nailed that down and said like well everything that this adult that you see this functioning adult that you see can be explained by this thing that happened when they were X number of years old. I think that it gives these characters a great deal of dignity to say like, I'm sure some of it is explained Mm -hmm. by what they were like when they were that age. And I'm sure a whole lot of other stuff is not right. And and so far I like the the messiness. I, when I said that it didn't really map on for me, I didn't mean that as a criticism. I actually think it's, you know, I think Stephen King means for it to be scary, right? Mm -hmm. That like that these kids don't grow and develop. Right. Right. And I think, the kind of zigzag line that connects Christina Ricci to Rosie O'Donnell has made the most powerful statement in that movie in a certain way, because it's saying, you know, yeah, like, does your youth determine some of your adulthood? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. Um, are there other parts that are new or unpredictable? That is also true. And I think that's a much nicer thing than like, nah, it's going to be the killer clown, dude. It's going to be just the killer clown. <laughs> or the or the dead guy you found, <laughs> and then you jumped up that bridge or whatever happens in standby. It's been a while. <laughs> It's no, but that's actually true. That does make me like, and I felt it actually. The one thing I felt watching it this time Mm -hmm, is because mm -hmm. it's probably I'm older. I wanted to live in the older characters' worlds more to kind of to play in that kind of like because I do think what is fun about it is imagining all that space we don't see of all those years we don't see and and filling in those gaps ourselves. You know, that's a fun way to engage as an audience with a story. And I found myself wanting more of, of. uh, of the grown-ups for sure totally i wondered about this right there's a there's a beat where we're told that melanie griffith is on her for, fourth marriage right and and i realized that like i was like well cool so she turned out to be pretty interesting i was like oh wait yeah. no, this is a 90s movie that's supposed to show that she's broken in some fundamental way but like maybe that's also the thing that like this movie is from 1995 right. and we're just not the right thing there are things in here that are value judgments that like you know, that like, maybe we're supposed to look at Demi Moore and be like, why hasn't you found a nice man yet? But like, you're just like, she seems like a total ball buster. I love her. Uh, and like, she's amazing. Yeah, she's great. Right. And like, I do wonder whether there's like, there is more predictability than I gave it, than I gave it credit for just, but I'm, I've become kind of blind to those, hmm. to those value judgments that a nineties comedy would have implied. Right. Like, I guess a character being on her fourth marriage is supposed to be a negative, but it's like, this person had a lot of sex and a lot of fun and like seems to have accomplished a lot in her field. And she said she wanted to get out of this town. She definitely did that. Hey, I mean, like, I don't know. I'm not like, you know, I'm not mad at it. I mean, they all did great. Yeah. Right. They all did great. Yeah. (laughs) They did. And the movie in that sense is presenting female success as something that could take more than one different form, you know? And in that sense, it's a very generous movie in that image making. Like, I think, Adrian, as you were talking, I was thinking that it's also quite remarkable and feels like something that wouldn't be made in 2021, that this is a story, there's like two hours of 12 year old girls and none of them are really being excruciated at all during that time. Like there's no horror or trauma visited upon them that they'll have to like reckon with forever. They're like discoveries and odysseys, but there aren't like, you know, devastating events in that way. And that is kind of remarkable and like optimistic in a way. Yeah, that's the family friendly kind of POV of the movie, you know, like I think it's meant to be yes. from that kid's perspective is meant to be like E.T., you know, I think whatever scary is not actually presented as scary, you know, like when the parents are arguing downstairs, you're never in that scene, you're with the two girls in the flashlight in bed, like that's the point of view of the Mm -hmm. movie is the kind of safety and warmth of that space.
getting back to Melanie Griffith's character, I think it, the movie is levying a kind of value judgment on her four marriages, but technically there are only three because the first one was annulled. You know, like I think that line in and of itself refers to the implied value judgment. But I also noticed in the marketing copy that I think I think it encapsulates the movie something like, you know, two decades after the fateful summer that they were 12, a group of four women reunite for whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think the implication is that they're in their early 30s. So I, th- I think that would be quite young to have gone through four marriages. But I, I land where you land, Adrian, where I'm like, bully for her. Yeah. Like, she's a fucking icon. Like, the moment when Melanie Griffith, like, as I was watching this movie this time, the moment when Melanie Griffith steps out of the limo and says, hey, you bitches, I yeah. was like, that is ingrained on my soul. <laughs> like, that is my sexual orientation, is that line. <laughs> I mean, she's, a, she's a Hollywood actress, right? I mean, like... She is! You get to have a couple extra marriages. If she was like... If she plowed her way through accounts receivable, I get why, like, like, come on, four marriages is kind of a lot. But, but come on, she's, right, she's right, clever. Right, right. She's clever. <laughs> if Rosie O'Donnell, yeah. as, a, as a small town doctor, had managed to accrue four, you know, marriages, like, I mean, right. at that point it just gets expensive. But, um, right, right. but Hollywood, I mean, you know Hollywood is. Well, and who better to pull off that Hollywood glamour credibly than Melanie Griffith, yeah. who was, like, near the peak of her career mm-hmm. at that point and also the daughter of another movie star, right. you know? Like, she literally has it in the blood but i just wanted to say and i'm curious what you guys think of this i want to start verging into talking about the the movie's perspectives on sex and sort of sexual initiation and i have to say right after that melanie griffith moment when melanie griffith then like steps over and greets to me more and they give each other this like super like long charged hug and like look at each other like there was a real like I was sitting there being like the two of them hooked up and just like never told the other two and like there's nothing you could convince me otherwise like they're standing there and like Demi Moore is in a suit a black suit and like Melanie Griffith is in like a white like short skirt suit and they look like they're dressed for their own butch femme wedding is basically my reading of that scene your fried green tomatometer went off (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) that is a new metric that we are incorporating into this show. Yes. Trademark. Exactly. <laughs> TM. I love it. <laughs> the fried green tomatometer. Ding, 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 ding. Um, <laughs> but like, what do you guys, another thing that I thought about in how this movie portrays sex is like, I was watching the scene where the girls are peeping on the naked Wormer brothers skinny dipping. And I was like, wow, this cinematography is actually super skillful in like, showing the girls clearly watching the boys and there's no question of what they're seeing, but it doesn't actually do it in like a child porny way that like is objectifying the boys and allowing the viewer to see that. But like, basically, what do you guys think of how this movie portrays kind of the intimation of sex and sexuality? I mean, you know, the whole what's a hard on conversation. I mean, Chrissy with her like this, I mean, I feel like she's performing a kind of like almost mm-hmm. like toddler like kind of innocence that you're talking about, even when in her younger version as the 12 year old, like taking her mother literally when she's talking about watering plants. Gardening, yeah. That's the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And she's always the butt of the joke, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also the fat, I mean, this is a deviation, but the fat jokes when it came to Chrissy, I think all that stuff was like really. Didn't age well. Everything about the way she was really like targeted by these girls both in the younger years and the older years is just like kind of unnecessary and there's always that one in the four right yes. like I don't know yes. what that is yes so no one wants to be that person right you know and so it's like who is that character for you know she's not anyway I think that's a really good question. Who is that character for? It seems to be, or I might hypothesize that it's a kind of concession to the misogyny of the audience. Right. Like if they're going to root for some female characters, they have to have one to root against. Right, right, right. Um, But I don't know if that's the only interpretation. I mean, I must admit I was more generous to the movie there. I think isn't, isn't there in many friend groups and you know I, I must say most of mine were more mixed gender. So I don't really know about all girls clicks, but no, everyone's figuring shit out, but there's the one that mercifully has figured shit out the least. And so you can mock them to yes. mask the fact that you've been, that you learned the thing that they just found yes. out five minutes ago. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And I kind of, I, that's the, that's the vibe I got. Not that these were like, um, you know, three incredibly forbearing wizened, you know, right. uh, experts who are like, Oh my God, she's such a, she's such a rude, but it's more like she kind of was the lightning rod that allowed 
that was them, you know, like 10 minutes before. But it was lucky that they that she was there because it, it, it meant that their own aging process was maybe a little bit less, a uh, little bit less spectacular. Conspicuous. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I also, I mean, I always, I always liked that Roberta was the one that like had the kiss because she is like, she beats the boys up and she's like the one that, you know, like she's just has a different energy that like, I think that wouldn't always get the kind of romantic lead part, but it was even part of it must've been that she, it was Christina Ricci. Mm -hmm. And of course, like they were going to put her with like the boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing, right? It is a little bit hard to tell with the kids. I mean, It's just that, like, I mean, Thora Birch is a pretty great actress already at that age, and Christina Ricci is phenomenal. And, like, it's just, like, if you have those two in your ensemble, the other two are going to get different things to do, right? Because, like, it's going to, it's going to great if, yeah. if like, they, they're not all acting at the same level. And I think that that's, I agree that, like, yeah. there were, I forget exactly where, but there were beats that felt, I was like, this actually would make more sense for this other character, but they were like, yeah, there's no way we're letting, you know girl you've never heard of do this um <laughs> nothing against ashley aston moore or gabby hoffman but like you know christina ricci was just kind of like preternaturally good right and and so the movie clearly gives her stuff to do that like right. even if it would make more sense for different characters like yeah but she can carry it and that was sort of yeah. my impression yeah. and she was i mean christina ricci was i think pretty inarguably the biggest star of the young actresses at that point but mm -hmm. i'm also thinking i mean i love gabby hoffman so much and i feel like they give her a fair amount of dramatic meat to chew on here yes that's true in terms yeah. of, i mean i like have a lot of trouble actually i was realizing on this rewatch i have a lot of trouble watching the scene where gabby hoffman is trapped in the storm drain about to like drown yeah. and be waterboarded <laughs> like it's like a really it really gripped me as a scene and it was hard to watch. And I think part of that is her performance being, and Thora Birch's performance being excellent. Um, can we please talk about Brendan Fraser? Because like, Oh God. Oh my God. Adrian, what do you think of Brendan Fraser? I mean, in general or take the question any way you need to just, just talk to me about Brendan Fraser. How big, how, how big was he at this time? I, I must admit that while he was pretty big, he was pretty big. I think this is post school ties and pre, um, Tarzan, the, what was the Tarzan movie and the Alicia Silverstone movie? No, the, no, the, the, mum, the mummy ones too, right? Like, yeah, I think it's pre that, but post his like heartthrob school ties era. So this is definitely like in the thick of his fame. Okay. Cause that, that makes it strange. I was like, well, is this like an early brand? Like I, I, I've always enjoyed seeing him, but I, I'm not sure I understand the, the trajectory of the Fraser, which I, I also understand has been, I'm looking it up. has been a little bit complicated in recent years, right? He like disappeared under mm -hmm. kind of horrifying circumstances, it seems like. But um, I was more shocked. I, I mean, he's, he's a smoke show, whatever. We, he, he shows up as a literal smoke show. <laughs> um, but that's the other part of it. I wouldn't say that the scene of, of a kind of roving Vietnam vet who gives cigarettes to a bunch of 12-year-olds and like... <laughs> <laughs> they flirt with him pretty, pretty, pretty strongly. Like, I don't know if that would be in a movie today. I have to yeah. say, I was, I, the entire time I was like, you know, he's a hottie and like, that's fine. But like, uh, if he were hanging out with Demi Moore and with Melanie Griffith, I'd feel a lot more comfortable right now. Totally. So I'm learning some interesting things on IMDb that I want to throw into the mix. And then Mira, I want to hear your thoughts. So he did School Ties in 1992, which I believe was his first starring role. And See No Man was that same year. Then from like 1993 to 1995, when Now and Then comes out, he's doing a lot of like bit parts. He doesn't get a lot of like big parts. So I think I misspoke before when mm -hmm. I said this was the peak of his career. I think this is distinctly pre the peak of his career, which mm -hmm. makes a lot more sense with this part. But I'm also noticing on Air Air Airbnb, B. I'm not looking at Airbnb right now at IMDb that he is uncredited in this movie. He has no character name and the IMDb listing is just Vietnam veteran uncredited. Yeah. So I don't know what to make of that. But then he does. Let's see. After this, he does George of the Jungle in 1997, Gods and Monsters in 1998 and The Mummy in 1999. And I think that is the more kind of paradigmatic peak of his career. Yeah. yeah. So Gods and Monsters is, is terrific. So good. So, so it's good. Great in that. Yeah. While we're doing that, I also want to point out that so you're absolutely right about Christina Ricci she had at this point done both of the Adams Family movies so right. really quite a recognizable face mm. 
Yeah, totally. I think she was why I saw this movie, as I recall, as a 12-year-old. Like, she was what got me in the door. I knew her as an actress. But Mira, what do you think? I have some theories about how the Brendan Fraser Vietnam veteran functions, but what do you think of him, him in this role and that character on a writing level? I mean, smoke show, agreed. Such a smoke show. I think he's there to remind us of Vietnam, remind us of the time and place and the context in which these, the innocence and kind of the bubble of the movie is happening in the context of this war and this time period and this disruption, this unraveling society around them. That's not yet affected mm-hmm. the Gaslight Edition, though it's starting to because Sam's parents are getting a divorce. So it's starting mm-hmm. to feel the ripple effects <laughs> of these hippies <laughs> protesting the war out there. You know? Yeah. Sorry, I love the way you put that. Who can pursue holy matrimony if there's hippies out there? <laughs> there's smoke shows like Brendan Fraser around. Why are you? Why would you stick around with <laughs> yeah. whoever's yeah. Fuck exactly. marriage. <laughs> um, can I just go back to my pet theory about the about the generations? Though he's also one of the characters that doesn't fit into that generational paradigm, right? Like he's neither the age of the parents nor the age of these mm-hmm. kids, and immediately the movie kind of productively doesn't know where to put Mm -hmm. him like it's i think in a good way right like he upsets the balance by being there and 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 it's it's noticeable a lot of the kind of yeah i mean janine garofalo too like how old is she supposed to be oh we're gonna talk about her too oh we will yeah yeah Um, yeah. but like right it's it's noticeable that like people who are like 25 which he must be or 25 22 maybe people who are like in their 60s like they kind of don't they they don't belong in the world of the movie and they create kind of interesting friction right and i think he does that very well in a very short scene yeah sam's grandmother yes sam's grandmother cloris leachman um cloris leachman so i i agree with both of what you said about brendan fraser's vietnam veteran i think that he is both the sort of avatar of an unsettled outside world and like the world that lays beyond the gaslight edition and sam's parents divorce i also think that he is a catalyst for these characters and like their desires and that was what i was thinking as i was watching the film this time i feel like he is there to incite sexual drama. Like he is there as a catalyst to inspire different reactions from the four of them. And that's, and that's Mm. what he does, right? Like predictably, as we have learned to expect from these characters by this point in the movie, Chrissy is horrified and like quoting her mother and rejecting everything about him and what he represents. The other three take the cigarette with different degrees of enthusiasm versus hesitance. Like Teeny Mm -hmm. is 100% trying to bone this like itinerant veteran. Like, Christina Ricci's such a such a Samantha such a Samantha Christina Ricci is kind of feeling him out she's a little bit more familiar with like men as a concept she she wants to try the cigarette but like Samantha Gabby Hoffman Samantha is the one who really connects with him and like really identifies with him and is like sort of finishing his sentences for him and I think we're supposed to understand that she's sort of seeing a glimpse of her like own nomadic future in him but I really think that he exists as a kind of at which point she is a smoker totally like i think we're to understand that this is her first cigarette right and that this is all of their first cigarettes so he is giving her something that is going to stick with her for the entire life of the movie for example um but i feel like he's there to inspire those reactions from those four characters and I, i think it's also notable that they meet him directly after the penis sighting incident with the warmer brothers like this is a really big day for them like they see their first penis they have their first cigarette you know they meet their first drifter like they look up some shit in the library like these girls are busy roberta finds out how her mother really died that's what they were looking up in the library right yeah this is a huge day yeah i mean that i feel like that almost doesn't have enough of an of a reverberation for roberta for the rest of the movie (laughs) until it does until she smashes a mirror you know in cloris Mm -hmm. leachman's house but yeah Okay, so you brought up Cloris Cloris Leachman and Janine Garofalo, and I really want to talk about them too. Like, I feel like particularly in, well, Janine Garofalo is introduced in the diner scene where they're ordering the black cows, which I believe is Coca-Cola and vanilla ice cream and sounds absolutely delicious. (laughs) And like, I love the positioning of these four girls that they're sitting at this window seat in the diner and just sort of watching all of these different versions of feminine performance drift by. Like they see Sam's mom dressed like Nancy Sinatra and then Janine Garofalo shows up and they like know she's a witch. But like, what, what, what function do you guys think Janine Garofalo's 
character and also Cloris Leachman's character serve here. I would just add, like, actually, that I, that's my favorite scene in the movie. And I think oh, mm-hmm. there's also there's a shot before that that I noted this time that's like an establishing shot of the town that's very staged to show this wedding being photographed. I like that this, yes. uh, this uh, bride and groom being photographed in like the yeah. town square, Great then running life. into the street. And then the girls are in the diner and the parade of femininity that you just outlined kind of kicks off. It's just, it's so good. But that's a really important yeah. part of the parade of femininity. That's their yeah. future. They're seeing what or possible versions of their future are all walking by this diner is kind of the way the movie is setting it up. Yeah. As yeah. they take this quiz. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and they take this quiz, this diagnostic quiz. Right. And a quiz that very specifically tells them that they will right. develop differently, right? Like, or from each other, not not from these performances of femininity, but that that there are different paths and that these paths mm-hmm. will be kind of opposed yeah. to one another. Um, yeah, I, I agree that, that that's a terrific scene. I feel like it's very well trod territory at this point, like very much approaching cliche. But like, I love a magazine quiz as a character establishing device. Like, that's one of my <laughs> favorite. You know, like I love a reporter, I love a therapist, I love a magazine quiz. Uh-huh. Like, those are my favorite tropes. I also like the fact that like I, I thought of it as the Gilmore Girls' seats by the by yes. the window, like such a yeah. trope as well. And I mean, that's interesting, right? They're in town. And that town is clearly kind of, I mean, it has a mainstream USA kind of thing and it's almost certainly shot on a back lot somewhere, I would guess. But like, it is very much not a suburban development, right? right? Like wherever they wherever they are now is different from right. their subdivision and likely fairly removed, in fact, right? I mean, like that subdivision does not seem to be adjacent to very much of anything. And, and suddenly they're in a totally different and a far more traditional kind of arrangement of space too. And then suddenly they're like... Yeah, I guess the Gilmore Girls would be one thing or be like where like Sam Spade might sit at a diner too, right? Like it's like sort of the suddenly like in a, in a, in a totally different space and existing there. And same with the public library, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those scenes where you wonder like, do their parents like know where they are? Like, what are they like? They just like go to the diner by themselves. Totally. And, like order their own food. And... This is pretty strange. This is pretty stranger yeah. danger. <clears throat> they, they, uh, kids just, um, they're like, dad, I'm taking a flamethrower out to the to the quarry to the active quarry and and there's like yes yes child um i wrote down that i think that one of the i was thinking about the age placement of this movie both like the age of the country at that time and the way you guys are talking about and the age of these characters being put at this very specifically prepubescent moment that is kind of like a borderline moment that seems to echo what you were just saying, Adrian, about like the sort of borderline of geography that's being presented you know Mm -hmm. this is new territory like this 12-year-old moment seems to be within this movie, like the moment where these girls, like the tr- the well-intended sort of lies that their parents have told them, like, oh, your mother like felt no pain, you know, when she was crushed in a devastating car accident. And like, oh, your fighting parents are never going to get divorced. Like, this is the moment where those well-intended lies begin to fall apart, mm. you know, for these young girls who are developing their own kind of lived truths in a kind of simultaneity with these peers. And like that, I think calls back to what you were saying earlier, Mira, about like the scale that this movie puts those relationships on, you know, like these are really formative things. Yeah, that was just, I was just thinking about that, that age and like the specificity of it. Although I think the specificity of the time I actually felt was a little fuzzy for me, right? Because you can, yeah, people tell the exact same story from the early right. 60s, right? Like you can do that. Mm-hmm. Or, and again, like E.T. does it in 1982. Mm-hmm. There's something about suburban childhood that can kind of feel like history is happening for the first time, right? Like mm-hmm. the Vietnam vet can drift in in exactly the same way the G-men drive into Elliot's subdivision and E.T. At the same time, I guess what it made me think of was the 1970 thing doesn't actually do as much work as the film seems to think it does. I almost sometimes think it's mm-hmm. just like 1995 minus 25 years, right? Or something like that. I um, think most of the work is in the soundtrack. Yeah. Like that's, that's but the, even the soundtrack part of it. I'm sorry, but, but I mean, like, I guess I didn't look it up, but Daydream Believer is not a 1970s song, is it? No, like, a how, lot of it is how, 60s. Any, sugar, sugar. I mean, those are, those, I mean, those are, I mean, Obviously, pop culture moves at different speeds, and they wouldn't be listening. Daydream Believer is 1968, so that's not crazy. Okay, two years. Okay, I stand corrected. But but it felt to me, right, like like it was noticeable, right? Like, I mean, the... It, it, it wasn't like Buffalo Springfield or, mm-hmm. or like, uh, you know, the doors or something like that, right? Like, it, it felt very... Sam's mom and, like, her wardrobe... Yeah, she's the only, like, contemporary woman of the 70s in the entire thing. Exactly. And that shows it. That might exactly. be one of the only mm-hmm. signals, mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. signals. 
Mm -hmm. The last thing that I wanted to make sure, you know, I have a whole bunch of other notes on like the Boo Radley figure of what's his face, not Dear John, Crazy Pete, like, and how, like, I feel like that character, like, that's the exact same character as the old guy in Home Alone. Like, I Mm -hmm. I thought it was the same actor. It was like so similar to me, but it's not. It's just the same stock character. So we could talk about that if you guys want to. But but one thing I wanted to make sure that we talk about is like sort of what is this film's legacy? You know, like I think we've already talked about how significant it is that such a female powered movie was made and released in 1995. But when I was doing some of this research, I also saw that like this movie was a box office success, right? It was made for $12 million and then it made $37.5 million. But like we don't hear it talked about that way. And like Mira, you and I have already narrated how we we couldn't find this movie on streaming anywhere 10 years ago. And I read in my research that it didn't become widely available on streaming until Netflix added it to its catalog on 2019. So I've seen some other critics kind of talk about how this movie, like how basically like misogyny makes this movie a cult film. Well, Stand By Me is like a classic, you know, yeah. but I'm sort of what I'm curious what you both think of this movie's like Mira, what do you think is this movie's enduring relevance? Do you think it's been mistreated by the critical establishment? Like, do you think it's been unfairly sidelined? What do you think of it in the long view? Yeah. I mean, I think that like, it's, uh, it's probably dismissed as like kind of a lesser stand by me. And I think that's not, Mm -hmm. obviously that's kind of tinged with gendered stuff, but like, uh, but I think, I think it's gotten more popular over time as it should have. It just, you know, I think it was a product of that. It was product of probably being over marketed as a female stand by me. And then when it wasn't like exactly that movie or wherever it fell until maybe kind of more formula, um, it was pan. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of maybe set up for a bit of critical failure in that way, but I think it's held up. I mean, like, and it's because the, probably the, the kids that were influenced by it, like you and me, Laura, were like, are like older now and are like, mm-hmm. this movie's the shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. Whereas like at the time it was probably being reviewed by people that like had no way to relate to it. Yeah. I mean, I still think the more we're talking, the more I think like the movie's slightness is in some way its greatest mark of courage, right? Yes. The fact that it doesn't kind of go for yeah, the life destroying, the heavy handed metaphor, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And in some ways, I feel like Hollywood's always had an easier time accepting that in foreign productions than in its own productions, right? If someone's like Oh, not not that much happens. It's uh, you know the kind of things that are significant for you when you're 12, and not that significant looking back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's which is all right. Uh, it's like I'm sorry. Um, is someone is you know is there going to be a murder? You know, uh, no, there is not. Right. Like, and I think that there's something um, like that too here. Right. That like the film pulls its punches, and I think in a kind of politicized way, which I very much like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was definitely not how you know how you made movies in the 90s right i was trying to think as you were talking of other films i could name that have protagonists of a similar age you know that that aren't as slight in their scope the first one that occurred to me was precious that that protagonist is actually 16 years old um but that's like a 2009 film that is obviously unbelievably traumatic i was also just thinking about eve's bayou which is which is a protagonist of closer age to this one eve is Mm. 10 in that movie to these girls 12 but like that too is a much more kind of sweeping in some ways very traumatized but like it's a much more dramatic movie is maybe the way to put it so i do think that race figures largely into why these girls and how these girls are allowed to be so carefree on screen um i think race and class figure largely into that but i do agree in the final analysis that that is like one of the movie's strengths at least from my perspective well i think in a post kind of harry potter world like you don't have kids stories that don't have some sort of heightened um supernatural that's element right. that yeah. gets this kind of studio movie yeah. treatment and that's why it feels like so rare yeah and i mean in the 1990s i think non-white children as a whole would not have gotten this kind of this kind of movie treatment right i mean really hard to hard to imagine i doubt it was even a conversation i, I doubt it was even a thought in anyone's mind like, I don't, I doubt anyone even questioned the fact that all four oh, of yeah. I mean, like, it it wasn't even a part of, it wasn't part of the, the kind of 
um, you know, somewhat of the of the mechanisms that are rightfully in place now to like filter right. scripts through a right, right, right. test. You know, there was no, there were no, there was nothing like that in 1995. So it's no, there totally wasn't, and it, and it makes me think of like white feminism's blind spots again because like Leslie Linka Gladder. Well, I love this movie, you know, and like respect the achievement that it is. Leslie Lincoln Gladder went on to be one of the executive producers and showrunners of Homeland, which also had some pretty salient accusations of like white feminist racist blind spots. Um, mm. And huh. I would connect those two, you know, like I think that those blind spots are connected. I mean, part of why I'm sure this was perceived as slight was that it's that its cast is so incredibly stacked, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. one of the greatest mm-hmm. child stars of that age. Right. I mean, Demi Moore mm-hmm. was at the height of everything yeah. at the time, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I guess at that point, you do kind of expect certain things, right? Like, like there was, I'm sure there were independent films telling interesting... Like, I was thinking one, one comparison movie that's much later, but, like, you know, does a beautiful way of sort of telling about trauma in a way that isn't about the trauma is Beasts of the Southern Wild. But, of course, that's, like, a totally different yeah. kind of movie. Like, no... Mm-hmm. And a much younger protagonist. No 15 studio execs sat around, this is gold, yeah. gold, I tell you. You know, like, that's not, that didn't happen. Like, these mm-hmm. are, like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure that they were, they were quirky, interesting filmmakers. And we've talked about some of them on this podcast who did that kind of work in the 90s. It's just like, they didn't usually have Demi Moore yeah, showing up for work. Right. Even though it's just right, three right, days. Right. It's, a, it's yeah. a very big studio movie. Yeah. <sighs> Well, I could talk for another two hours about this movie, but um, but I won't. <laughs> but I'm so glad that both of you were willing to go on this this journey between now and then with me. Oh, I did it. Roll credits. <laughs> Is there anything that we didn't talk about that either of you were like dying to cover from the movie? No. Yeah, I don't like. I just didn't like the jokes about Chrissy. The jokes about Chrissy just really bothered no, me this time. I didn't like it either. <laughs> yeah. They bothered me this time too. Yeah, I, I was thinking the, in the it's in the seance scene and like, is it Thora Birch's character who just says to her like, "But you are fat." Yeah, and I'm like, wow. Like the supposition of this movie is that those two people just continue not just continue to be friends in the long run, but just continue this conversation and like nothing else in the scene is disturbed by that. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's a, that's a choice. Um, yeah, that bothered me too. It is funny, right? Like in a situation where like movies tend to give you these incredibly gendered expectations for characters. Like you you take any variance you get and it almost kind of makes you close your eyes to the variances that are then kind of shut down. It's like, well, but not like that. Mm-hmm, That's bad, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. We can make a movie about women, but they have to be acceptable women. Right. I mean, there there is definitely that underpinning yeah, here. Yeah. <sighs> well, that's a bummer, but that's the world and America. And certainly the 90s. (laughs) The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, Carolyn Asante Darty, and Morgan Kanan. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences.